when you get a taste of the good stuff, you'd think you'd never want to go back to the ordinary stuff. You'd think. When I was growing up, our family didn't have much money. My dad was a policeman, didn't get paid much. My mom was a at home mom and we lived out in the country and my mom used to make pizza for us or what I found out later was actually a poor facsimile <laughs> for what pizza actually is. She would make dough out of something, I'm not sure what kind of mystery flour it was. She would use some concoction of tomato paste. She would cut up hot dogs instead of pepperoni, and put all kinds of who knows what else was on it, and then covered it all with Velveeta cheese. <laughs> Which isn't really cheese at all, but a chemical concoction colored yellow. Orange, whatever it is. And then, I don't know, I was sixth or seventh grade, and my uncle Larry, who had been away to college, had married my mom who, or my mom. <laughs> okay, we're back with David, aren't we? <laughs> married my mom's younger sister. Came and brought a pizza from a real pizza place. And I discovered what my mom had been making. It looked similar, but it wasn't even close to what real pizza was. It actually had this really nice crust with a good pizza sauce, pepperoni, which I'm not even sure I, I knew existed. <laughs> Sausage and real cheese. And I'm going, oh, it was wonderful. Why would I ever go back to that? When I was in high school, um, we got in from a marching band performance real late on a Friday night, and I had to get up early Saturday morning to take my college entrance exams. And I was trying to get my eyes open, and my dad walked in the kitchen. He said, son, I think you need a cup of coffee. I said, okay. And he gave me this coffee that he made, and it, it did keep me awake. Um, and then I, I went um, to visit a college, and, and one of the students took me out to IHOP you ever, in Houston, Texas. International House of Paint, wonderful. With really... and, and and we got a cup of coffee, and I drank it, and I thought, is this what coffee is supposed to taste like? <laughs> because when I was growing up, my mom and dad had a jar on the counter with a thermos of hot water and little crystals of stuff that you would put on a spoon and put it in. A, and, the, and that was coffee to them. But then I had brewed coffee, and I thought, this is, I don't ever want to go back because I got a taste of the good stuff. That should translate to our spiritual beings. When we get a taste of who God really is, the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the presence of God, Him living in us and, and guiding us in our lives, our, our whole lives ought to be the pursuit of that because it's so good. And yet, I don't know if it will ever become our default because of the sinful, selfish nature that we live with. Because what I watch is, is in my life and in other people's lives is the example of David who had tasted of how good the Lord could be. 
and yet put himself into a position where he went back to sin and it cost him dearly. I think the reason is because the easy path, it provides kind of um, immediate gratification, pleasure, enjoyment. The path to experiencing God in an ongoing way is a costly path. And that's what our weeks of fasting and prayer are all about. Would you take the insert? There's an insert in the... Yeah. This is our, our fall week of prayer with fasting. It is not about food. Fasting is not about food. Fasting is giving up food. It's saying no to food in some way in order to say yes to God. But it's not really about food. It's about pursuing God. It's about opening ourselves to God. It's about allowing Him to do whatever He wants in our life so that we continue to experience the exceedingly abundant kind of life that he offers to us. And so my challenge to us is to uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Is to use fasting as a, uh, a habit, as a spiritual discipline to seek God with all of our hearts. So fasting is giving up food in some way, shape, or form. On the back side, it tells you the different types of fasting. We designate Sunday to Sunday. Some people will fast for that whole seven days. Other people will fast a meal a day or a couple of days in there. Some people will do a liquid fast, which means all you do is liquids. Other people will do a, a Daniel fast, which is basically nuts and um, fruits and vegetables. Um, other people will do different kinds of fasts. It, the key is, what does God want you to do? What does God want you to do? How does he want you to give up food in order to say yes to him? Here's, here's the key in all of this. Whatever you do, is every time you get hungry or you want to default just for comfort, for some kind of food that you've decided that you're going to not, you're going to abstain from, is to pray this prayer. Lord, I love you more than food. Do whatever you want in my life. The design is to focus on him, not on the food. To say, every time you get hungry, Lord, I love you more than food. Do whatever you want in my life. And if you pray that a hundred times during this week, you're looking to God. You're focusing on him a hundred times. It's all about giving up something, some kind of food, in order to say yes to him. So there's instructions there. You can read them. On the back side, the prayer focus as you fast. He, these, are the kind, these are the requests that I want you to um, take to God at least once a day. Um, and this, this is what I just kind of sense that I've heard. I don't, I don't really understand all of them. The first one especially, I just sense God said, pay attention. Pay attention. So as you're going through this, Lord, help me to pay attention. Show me what you want me to see. Um, Pay attention to those nudges and, and the alerts from God. Pray for more workers in the harvest. Um, Jesus is the only way for people to experience life. And there are thousands of people who are around us all week long who desperately need a relationship with Christ. So pray that God would send more workers in the harvest and that, because that's Jesus' prayer. That's what Jesus told us to pray. And then that we would be that. Pray for the lost, those who don't know Christ, the lonely, those who don't have a church family. Pray for mission. Ask God, what is it you want us to do next? 
and then pray for me. Lord, give Pastor Herb direction, instruction, understanding of what your next steps are. And then record the important stuff. We talked about having a journal during the Experiencing God emphasis. Write down what you see. Write down um, what God shows you, the insights, the, the moments, the significant things that he might be saying to you. And then hold on to them. And then most importantly, obey whatever he tells you to do. Because it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter good intentions. It matters. He says, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. So that's our week of prayer and fasting. Um, and I put the, some notes in there from last week. If you want to follow up with that about uh, prayer and fasting as a lifestyle. Lord, I pray that we would now hear your voice even more acutely. Um, let the words that come out of my mouth direct our attention to you and what you want us to know and how you want us to live. Lord, we've heard the word obey, obedience so often through our lives that the familiarity gets in the way. So alert us uh, and give us insight into what you want us to pay attention to and how we can obey and step with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The Experiencing God realities. We are at number seven. Reality number one, God is always at work around us. God pursues a continuing love relationship with us that is real and personal. God is the one that takes the initiative. God invites us to become involved with him in his work. It's not just a relationship where we sit across the table drinking coffee. He has put us on mission. God speaks by the Holy Spirit through Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. He doesn't leave us in the dark, but he's always instructing us. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief where you have to choose, is, is God enough? Is, and, and, dis, and believe that God will deliver, that he is trustworthy and that he will do what he says he will do. And that requires us to step out in faith even when we don't see, not living by sight, and take action. We have to make major adjustments in our lives to join God in what he's doing. You can't stay where you are and go with God. And then now we come to number seven. And in our learning communities, as we meet during the week, as you're doing your workbook during the week, this is the last third of our experiencing God. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what it means to be on mission. This is what it means to be living in step with Christ. This is where abundance life is. You come to know God by experience as you obey him. And he accomplishes his work through you. So obedience to God let me give you a, a few no, you know, statements about obedience, and then we're going to look at a chapter in the Old Testament for an example. Obedience is a lifestyle. It's not words. It's not good intentions. It's not enough to sing, I, I will trust and obey, but rather it's actually doing what God tells us to do. Amen. And it's not just a moment in time. It's this lifestyle of living it out. Obedience is much more ordinary actions than extraordinary achievements. There's, I, th I believe, a subtle um, strategy of the enemy is to make us think um, of the moments in the Bible, in those big moments when Peter walked on the water, 
or when the Israelites walked through the Red Sea as it opened up, or, you know, those humongous kind of moments and think, well, oh, that's what obedience to God. That's what it means to obey. It's, it's those big things. But I believe that it's more in the moment by moment by moment by moment. Am I doing this moment what God wants me to do? Am I obeying Him in this moment? Am I obeying Him in this, this relationship? Am I obeying God in this decision? Am I putting... David got in himself into trouble because he wasn't obeying God way before he ever called for Bathsheba. Right? He, was, he put himself in the wrong place. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do as king. He, it was way back. And, and so most moments of obedience are those ordinary actions. Obedience requires a wit attitude. I've, I said, I've made that up. Um, no, wit is a word, but the acronym is something I made up a long time ago. Does anybody remember what it was? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. It requires that attitude. Because God will bring you to the place where uh, you don't want to do that. And in those moments, you don't want to do that, you go, I don't... I don't want to do it, but I want to do what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it, whatever it takes. It's an invitation more than a demand. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You will do what I tell you to do. It's an invitation to experience him. It's an invitation to walk with him. But I'm not sure we have um, a point of reference in our lives because when a teacher tells us to do something, it feels like this, right? When, uh, when our parents tell us to do something, we usually remember those things we don't want to do, not the things we want to do. <laughs> and so we, it feels like God is doing this. If you love me, I'm, you will do what I tell you to do. I got experience with that with my kids, can you tell? <laughs> That's not it. It's an invitation. If you love me, you'll do what I want you to do because it's really good. It's like drinking real coffee instead of instant coffee. It's like eating real pizza instead of Velveeta-covered dough. So it's more of an invitation than a demand. And then it's the pathway to experiencing God. If you want to experience God, you follow Him. You do what He tells you to do. You can't experience God unless you're with Him. And if you're not obeying him, you're not with him. You're someplace else. So let's talk about it. So our focus today is on obedience as ordinary actions, as ordinary moments that lead to experiencing extraordinary God. So turn your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 311. Ordinary obedience that leads to experiencing an extraordinary God. So point number one is ordinary obedience is the pathway to experiencing an extraordinary God. Second Kings chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. We find the account of... Um, in the life of Elisha, where impossible situations, God allows or creates impossible situations in our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves. Now, let's not rush past that. We generally don't turn to God 
when the good times are rolling, do we? He bring his, is a gift from God to bring us to a place where we are forced to turn to him. We are at the end of ourselves and we desperately need God. So we see it in Jesus' ministry all through the New Testament. It was people who were at the end of themselves that sought him out. And that's what we find here. A possible situation that brings a man to the end of himself. So 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. So it wasn't even Israel or Samaria. It wasn't any of God's people or God's, pro- God's land. But it was Syria was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was able to accomplish these great things, but he was at the end of himself because he was a leper. And you've probably heard about leprosy in the, in the Bible. It was a death sentence. It was a it was an isolation sentence. You couldn't be around your family. You couldn't be around your work. You were, had to be with only, only other lepers. You couldn't worship God. You, you were just isolated. And that's where Naaman was. God takes us to the end of ourselves. And then God tells us to obey. To do something only, to do something we can do, which opens the door for him to do what he wants to do. Verse 2, hope and disappointment. Now the Syrians on on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So in one of their battles, they picked up this little Israelite girl and they'd taken her back and she was a servant. She said to her mistress, would my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he hears this hope. He's at the end of himself, so to the point where he believes this um, unbelievable story from this little servant girl, who is not a great authority. She's just a little girl. She's just a little servant. She's a prisoner. She's a slave. And she hears it, but he's so at the end of himself that he will do whatever it takes to try to find a way to be clean. Now, God will bring you to the end of yourself as an opportunity. And we've got to recalibrate. When you get to the place that you feel like you're facing an obstacle that, that can't be resolved, it's a gift from God because God's got something in mind. When things are at their worst, God is working most. So we've got to recalibrate this. When things go wrong, when things go bad, we look to him and say, okay, God, what are you doing? What are you? He's up to something because it's a gift to bring us to the end of ourselves. Otherwise, we depend on, our, on ourselves. That's just what we do. So he goes to his king and the king goes, oh yeah, if that'll do it, go. So he has some hope. He went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He's willing to pay whatever it takes to get clean. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I sent to you, Naaman my servant, that you, (laughs) you may cure him of his leprosy. Now imagine you're the king, and you get this letter from Syria, who is a conquering nation, who's a threat to you, 
And the, and the Syrian king says, I'm sending Naaman, my soldier, to you so that you, O king, can cure him of leprosy. And the king goes, Right? I mean, and he reacts in that way. Why? Well, he says, And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, which was an act of despair. And he said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of of his leprosy? Only consider, see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. In other words, he's doing something to create um, angst between the two so that he has an excuse for conquering Samaria. And so the king goes, but when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. The point is not Naaman. The point is not the king of Israel. The point is God. It's a gift when God brings us to the end of ourselves because when the king of Samaria gets the letter, he's at the end of himself too. He's about to find out that there is a prophet of God. In Israel. And so oftentimes on the path to God experiencing God, there are these ups and downs, hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment, but hold on because there is a God who is still on his throne and he loves us and he wants to draw us to himself. And then we come to ordinary obedience. Ordinary obedience. And you might, you might want to fasten your seatbelt. We've got a lot to cover here. Ordinary obedience. So Naaman, verse 9, 1 Kings chapter 5, came with his horses and chariots and stood at the, at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are we not, are not Abana and far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned away and went in a rage. And here's, here's one of the most important points. Circle it, highlight it, whatever you do to get it fastened into your head. Oftentimes, When God tells us to do something, it seems ordinary. When God is working, it often feels it ought to be bigger than this. So Naaman goes to Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house. Remember, this is like the second highest, most powerful person in all of Syria. And Elisha just sends a servant outside and says, "Ah, you know, go dunk in the river seven times and it'll be clean. And And Naaman responds like we often would. If God really loved me, he would do this incredible thing. He would come out and he would have his magic prophet dust and he'd wave it over me. He'd go, oh, and and, you know, he'd just have this incredible ceremony and he would would proclaim in this prophet's voice that he would be, why? Because Naaman thinks he's important. And part of his problem is his pride. So not only is he healing the leprosy, but he's also dealing with his pride. 
Because if, Na- if, if Elisha does all of that, Naaman thinks Elisha did it. And the point's not Elijah. The point's not Naaman. The point is God. And then he receives the glory. So he's mad. I'm not going to do that ordinary kind of act of obedience. What, I, you know, if he wants me to do something big and, you know, huge, that's what I'm about. I'm not going to dunk in some dirty old river. <laughs> I love this story. So he turned away in rage, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? In other words, if, it's, if he asks you to do something incredible, climb a mountain, scale the highest heights, cross over, it, wouldn't you have done it? Because it was a big thing. Has he actually said, but he's actually said to you, wash and be clean. So much of our obedience is in the small. We want to do great things for God, and God says, go change a diaper. Right? Go forgive a neighbor. Go care for somebody that nobody else cares about. Do the little things. The small acts of obedience. Go be honest at work. The little things. So much of what will lead us to experiencing Him are the small things, like fasting. Does fasting seem like a big deal? Not really. But I'm, te- I'm here to tell you, after decades of doing it and watching other people, it is the small spiritual habit that will lead to incredible depth of an intimacy with God and allowing you to experience an extraordinary God. So the question is, will we do it? So much of obedience is the small things. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, what you see is Jesus dealing with things like being honest, forgiving other people, being helpful instead of critical with the speck in your eye, sticking with marriage. So oftentimes with his disciples, he told them to do the small things. Peter, uh, I heard you owe taxes. Go fishing. And, And the first fish you pull out, there'll be a coin that will cover your taxes and mine. Peter could have said, can't you just like make it appear? No, just go fishing. When the 12 were standing there looking at thousands of people and Jesus says, you feed them. It was just, just start handing out the bread. That's just a simple act of obedience. Just start handing it out. But you got to believe when he came across Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come fix me dinner. That's such a small thing, but, but it led to an extraordinary transformation. The blind man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then last week, remember we talked about the woman with Elijah making bread. Go make bread. And the oil never ran out and the flour never ran out. So what are the small things that God is telling you to do in obedience to him? Not the big things, the small things. Be faithful and little, and then God may give you something bigger later. So he had an extraordinary experience. He, he gave into what his servant said in verse 14. He went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Seven dunks in a river. You think he'd ever taken a bath before? Of course he had. It's just an ordinary thing. 
But if he walks away and goes back to Syria in a rage, mad that it wasn't bigger than that, he doesn't get healed. What might happen if we seek God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength during a week of prayer and fasting? What might not happen if we don't that God wants to do? What happened? Verse 15, they knew and they honored God. He re- verse 15, he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. God received the glory, right? Ordinary obedience led to an extraordinary understanding of knowing who God was. So accept now a present from your servant. And he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive them. Elisha responded. He said, I, I'm not going to take anything for this. Because he was listening to God. He was paying attention to God. And in this instant, he was not to take anything. In other times, other people provided for the prophets. But in this time, he said, no, I am not taking it. And the Bible doesn't tell us why. It just, he urged, Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Ordinary obedience that led to an extraordinary experience with God. And I was going to stop the message there, but I think the rest of the chapter identifies the flip side that is important. We come to ordinary disobedience that leads to extraordinary loss. Second, Second Kings Chapter 5, I want to jump down to verse 19. Selfish actions that lead to dishonoring disobedience. A dishonoring of God in disobedience. Um, So we find in verse 19, um, Elijah said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Now, so the indication seems to be that Gehazi, and I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it, but that's where we're working with it. Because I've never met anybody who named their child that, so it's so hard had in his mind that somehow this wasn't right. Pride rears its ugly head. David said, I'm going to stay home. Pride rears its ugly head. When I believe that I don't deserve something, so I'm not going to do what God wants me to do. Or I do deserve something, so I'm going to do something different than what God says. Pride rears its ugly head. And anytime pride gets in the way, we end up walking away from God. We end up doing something different. So for some reason, he says, Elijah should have taken something from this. Maybe because he's a pagan or something. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, lie number one. If you have to lie to do something, you can be absolutely confident that you're not following God. Amen. It's a downward spiral. Yep. My master has said, sent, sent me to say, there have, 
there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman, I mean, he would have done anything, right? Because he was so grateful to God. He, he thinks he's following God. He's cooperating with God because he thinks he's doing what the prophet is asking. Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags with changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. If you have to hide something, you can be sure that you're not following the, what God wants you to do. We've, talked, we've been talking in the last few weeks about living out by lies. If you have to do something that doesn't cooperate with what God wants, if you, ha- if you protect yourself out of fear or um, um, you think you're going to lose something, you can be absolutely sure that you're not cooperating with God. So he's lying, he's deceiving, he's hiding because he felt like he deserved more than he got from God. Let me just let that sit there. Have you ever caught yourself saying, I don't deserve this? Or I deserve more than this? I'm here to tell you today, the only thing that you deserve is hell. And everything else is a gift and grace from God because of his love for us. He thought he deserved more. Now, here's, here's, here's one of the, the difficult questions. Is how could Gehazi have been with Elisha watching his miracles? And it was miracle after miracle after miracle in Elisha. I mean, he just didn't. God used him for incredible things. And he was there. Gehazi's watching this time after time after time after time after time. And then he does this. Because we're only one decision away. Just like David. A man after God's own heart. But just like one of the, I, lo- I love the theology that comes out of kids' time. <laughs> like one of the kids said, God sees everything we do. And he does. He must have read the sermon. Verse 25. He went in and stood, Gehazi went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. <laughs> You'd think after all those, that time with Gehazi that he would know that Elijah has the Spirit of God. And he knows. He knows things that nobody else could know because it's God. Your servant went nowhere. It reminds me of this little kid. No, I didn't. I didn't do that. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? In other words, the Spirit of God showed me, gave me eyes to see what was happening. Was it time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? And the, the implied answer is no. That's why I didn't do it. And then here's one of the scary parts of living our lives. Sometimes there are no second chances. We hear this, this term thrown around in American Christianity a lot. God is the God of second chances. And he is. But not always. When David sinned with Bathsheba, it was never the same. He was forgiven, but it was devastating for generations because of an ordinary disobedience. Same thing happens here. 
Verse 27, therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants. It wasn't just Gehazi. It was generations that paid the price because of this this small act of disobedience, which in the scheme of things wasn't a big deal. But it was because it it went against what God said. And so he went out from his presence a leper like snow. We dare never presume on God. I've heard Christian parents say, well, you know, kids have to sow their wild oats and they have to go do, you know, and then they'll come back to God. Don't presume on God. I've heard other people say, you know, my job won't let me really serve God now, but before, you know, when I retire, then I'll, I'll come back and I'll serve God. Don't presume on God because there may not be those second chances. And even if you do come back, there will be ramifications. There's something about blatant disobedience that taints our soul. And we live with that forever. Sometimes there are second chances. Sometimes there's not. And you don't want to presume upon God. We usually don't know what we miss. Underline that or highlight it or something. Um, Because we don't know what didn't happen because we didn't cooperate with God. We don't know what might have occurred. That's why almost every time on the prayer and fasting insert, I put that statement, what might we miss if we don't seek God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? We don't know what we might miss. But I watch people who seek God um, for years and decades and, and experience an intimacy with God that you can almost see glow from them. And what I know is it's because for year after year after year, day after day after day, moment after moment after moment, they are pursuing him. They're surrendering to him. They're focused on him. They're, they're allowing God to work in their lives. And then I see the same people in the same congregation who have been supposedly in relationship with God for the same amount of time, and they're bitter and angry and frustrated, and it's because they didn't do the things that would pursue God. And they don't even know what they're missing. They look at that other person and they think, oh, they're they're just special before God. No, they just have done the things that they need to do. Disobedience is never worth it, ever. So we've got to get back to really believing that when God offers us the real coffee, the instant has to go. When God offers us the real pizza, that facsimile of something that my mom made has to go. You don't go back to that stuff. And when God says, I want you to obey, but it's hard and it's going to be tough and it's, it's going to require more of you than you can even imagine, we got to say, okay, and leave everything else behind. Now, I don't know what that means for you. But my observation is that it's probably some small things in your life. It's not, I, I doubt that God is, is saying to you to move halfway around the world, pick up everything and leave, at least at this point. It's, it's probably some small things. That's the, the process of being transformed into his image that the Bible talks about. 
the small things. So would you bow your heads? And I want to ask you a couple of things. Number one, how will you fast and pray and focus on God this week? Because if you follow in obedience to Him, it will make a difference in your life. You may not see it right away. You may not see it for years. But someday, God will open up your spiritual eyes and you'll look back and you'll be able to recognize Oh, God, you were so faithful in leading me to do those things to get me to where I am. So this week, what does God want you to do? Secondly, did God bring any act of obedience or disobedience to mind as we were talking this morning? If he did, it's because it's important that you obey. It may not seem like a big deal right now, but there's something to it. Will you trust and obey? Just trust. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself whatever way you see fit. I pray that you would help us to more fully surrender more fully trust, more fully obey. Give us the ability to listen this week, especially as we fast, as we seek you. Um, do whatever you want to do. I, I pray that you would um, convict us in those places where we need to be pushed and that you would encourage and affirm us as we do what you tell us to do. And as a congregation, Lord, that you would unite us and strengthen us and put us on mission in, in ways that we don't even know what you're up to, but we just want to follow. So here we are, Lord. Make this week the extraordinary experience in your economy that we can experience you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.